Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting on a very damp and chilly November day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Laura Stanley, and I'm here to bring you shop talk about issues that really matter with very smart and creative people who are working in and around K-12 food service. So um, as we promised on our last episode, uh, today we're going to explore the stubborn and very fraught issue of rising costs. Um, Not just what's costing more, but why it's costing more, and why some districts are struggling so much with this, and and why some others are not. Um, We've touched on this topic quite a bit on previous episodes, uh, but this time we're going to drill down. Uh, with the help of a return guest to Inside School Food, Gita Grether Sweeney, who is a registered dietitian and director of nutrition services for Portland Public Schools, that's in Oregon. Uh, after station break, we will turn to Gary Vonk of Key Impact Sales and Systems for perspective on the national food supply chain for K through 12. Gary is a veteran sales and marketing executive in this arena, so I'm excited to have him on to help us understand what's going on from the market perspective. So um, so let's get started. Good morning, Gita. Good morning, Laura. Thank you for having me on the show today. Uh, well, I I want to thank you by, uh, by thank you for coming back. Um, some listeners will remember that you were one of my very brave first two guests on the pilot episode of Inside School Food back in early May, um, and now you're on the advisory panel for the show, which means I get to bother you a lot with questions. <laughs> And I'm happy to be part of that. Right, right. And let's not forget that you actually named the show. So this wonderful title is courtesy of Gita. Um, so Gita, early May was a while ago. So let's let's you know for folks who didn't hear that episode, let's let's review again what your district looks like. Okay, so uh, our district in Portland, uh, Portland Public Schools, is the largest district in Oregon. Uh, we are a small state compared to other states, um, but we are the largest district. We have about 47,000 students, and our free and reduced rate is not that high, really, uh, looking at some of the other urban districts. We're only at 46% free and reduced. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, a central distribution center, but all our food is prepared on site at the various schools in the uh, kitchens. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of people, when they hear Portland, think about the food culture there, and they think about Portlandia, the show. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I know that's that's part of your world, but that's that's not the whole story. Like, you know, what, what are would you say that you're under special pressure to deliver a kind of a values driven, good food program um, of a kind that we see on TV, or is it more complicated than that? Um, I, we definitely have pressure from the community to provide uh, what uh, families consider, you know, healthy food. Um, everybody is a, an expert in food, and we each have our own perspective on food. But food is really a central part of uh, the values for the families that live in Portland. Right, right. 
And, and I know that's something that, that you welcome in the work that you do. Yes, yes, because I tend to be a foodie myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a registered dietitian, as you mentioned earlier in the show. So I have spent my entire career feeding children. And I feel it's really important to provide them a great wholesome meal. And it teaches them lifelong eating habits. So I kind of feel we need to model that in the school environment. Right, right. So so just just talk about some of the kind of real food, good food initiatives that, because I know you're doing a ton of great stuff. So, you know, just a few things that you're particularly psyched about that you're doing out there. So we are doing a number of things. One of our, fo- we have two actually two focuses. One is uh, to promote our harvest. In Oregon, we have a Harvest of the Month program that we've had for about eight years now in the schools where we feature a fruit or a vegetable that's grown in Oregon. And because Oregon is such a, uh, we have great agriculture and have access to wonderful food um, because of all the farms that we have. So we started that a number of years ago uh, to help kids learn, you know, what is grown in Oregon Mm -hmm. and then also, you know, where their food comes from. And then we also have a great, um, uh, big initiative in uh, purchasing local. We, uh, again, in Portland, we're really fortunate. We have a lot of uh, food manufacturers, and so we try to help um, put our funds back into the community and help support our local community. Right, right. When we so last are... spoke about this, you said you, you talked about a few things. You're doing local, locally mm-hmm. processed um, ketchup. Yeah, that was our, that's our latest. Yeah. Uh, we have port, it's actually uh, called Portlandia Ketchup, <laughs> okay. and if you can believe, and it's a great ketchup. It's organic. It's made in Portland. Uh, we are fortunate enough to have an Oregon Farm to School grant uh, that was, um, it's, we have it for two years, and because of that grant, uh, most of the money that we spend uh, or um, get from that grant is used to buy food, and it has to be um, grown or produced in Oregon. So ketchup is one of the things that we're able to purchase and right, help right. our local producer. Right. And um, chilies and... The, uh, so, yeah, we uh, also uh, work with uh, Truett Family Farms mm-hmm. in um, Salem, and we are buying chili and all our beans from them. Mm-hmm. And the chili is a vegetarian chili, and the kids really like it, and we've been serving that for a number of years. Uh, we also have a, a um, company that makes our pizza for us, a whole grain rich pizza um, with our commodity cheese. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a really uh, great partnership. They also use um, shepherd's grain flour, which is flour that's grown sustainably in eastern Washington state. Mm-hmm. And now we're really pushing at trying to source local chicken. Um, from, And we have a couple of uh, companies that we're working with, and I think and fingers crossed, I'll be able to buy chicken from them. And it'll be organic chicken, actually. Yeah. So that'll yeah. be awesome. Yeah. So we're really excited about that project. Right. But right. most every entree that we serve, there's at least one ingredient in the entree um, that is uh, produced locally in Portland. Right, right, right. I, I wanted you to talk about this, Gita, to, to basically just establish for listeners how deeply committed you are to um, this kind of progressive work um, Mm -hmm. and how much real food is on the plate because now we're going to launch into some real issues you have with regard to to cost. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, does, does, do you get, I know you mentioned a farm to school grant, but you know, what are, do you, do you enjoy any other kind of financial incentives to help you uh, do this kind of work and align with the local food values? No, 
We do not. Right. Um, other than the grants, we do not. Right. Um, so right. it it has been a challenge um, to do some of this work, uh, but I personally enjoy challenges, as does my staff. Uh, challenges are opportunities. And so we have been able to uh, incorporate a lot of these local products just by making some changes within our own organization. Um, but we are not getting any additional funding uh, to do the work. Right, right. And then as a district with a, you know, less than 60% free and reduced, you said it was 45%. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time we spoke back in May, you were you were really dealing with some serious challenges with your participation. I, th- I know things have improved, but it's still right. an issue for you. Can, you. can you talk about what happened when you introduced um, the new menus? Yes. So uh, in 2012, when we implemented the new regulations, we didn't anticipate uh, the decrease in participation because the, the main, I would say the biggest change that the students saw was that they had to take a half cup fruit or vegetable. And so I was shocked, you know, as we were looking at our participation each month that it just kept dropping. And so in the first year, we, it dropped 4% at lunch, and then the second year it dropped an additional 2%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, two years later, we're down 6%, um, which may not sound like a lot, but it's literally thousands of meals. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's been uh, a challenge. Right, right. And are you, you're see, are you seeing an inch up um, on average or in some of your schools? Like, you know, how are you managing? Yeah, so this year, surprisingly enough, you know, um, we did see an increase for the month of September. Um, we're just now evaluating this week, actually, the, uh, October, to see kind of what um, participation or where participation is. But we did see an increase in participation from last September to this September. Um, district-wide, it's actually up 6%. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, we're trying to delve down into why that is. Again, we have to see if it's going to t- continue into October. Um, but part of that increase, though, is um, because we have 25 schools that are now on the community eligibility provision, mm-hmm. which means, you know, all the students at those schools can um, have a lunch and breakfast at no cost. So in just those schools alone, it's an increase of 14%. So that has helped, you know, obviously district-wide. And so we were very excited to see that Um, for a number of reasons. Obviously, it helps our program, but more importantly, it's helping our students um, that they are actually getting a meal, eating, and then it helps them, um, sets them up to be successful for learning. Right, right. But what kind of position would Portland Public Schools be in financially if you did not have community eligibility in those schools? Um, it'd be an even uh, bigger struggle, even with the community eligibility and the increase in participation. Um, you know, granted, we get more funding because more kids are eating, but it's still costing us a certain amount to produce that uh, meal. Mm-hmm. And this is a really challenging year again this year because of the uh, new breakfast requirement, mm-hmm. where we have to serve an additional half cup of fruit. Um, and students have to take half a cup of fruit. Mm-hmm. And we're not receiving any additional reimbursement from um, the government for that. Right, so, right. And you're not the first mandate. guest to point that out on the show. That's yeah. a big deal. And you have said to me that if you did not have the advantage of the, you know, the community eligibility, you, your district might be one of those that is, would be dropping out of the federal reimbursement program. 
No, actually, I would. We're not high enough free and reduced to do mm-hmm. that. Right. Yeah. If we were a lower, you know, a lower free and reduced school district, I would look at that at some of the schools. But right. At forty six percent, we would still stay in. Right. The right. Program. Yeah. Yeah, sir. I, 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 that's what I meant to say. Was was you know, uh, in, in other words, having that number of, of free and reduced students has enabled you to stay in, but you would consider dropping out if it were lower, as so, as some districts have. Yeah. If it if it, it were right. dramatically lower, yeah. yeah. Right. Because there's there isn't an incentive. To, to stay right, right. So um, you recently, I think about two weeks ago, you had a, uh, a visit from a representative from Senator Ron Wyden's office. Senator Ron Wyden is is your uh, one of your Oregon senators, um, and you you spoke with that person about the your costs per meal. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could sort of break down what you 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 told that person. Um, so uh, yes, I um, had one of Senator Wyden's aides come and um, Grace Neal, and she had lunch with us. And it was on one of our harvest days. It was actually food day, um, October 24th. And I, I broke down for her the meal that she was actually eating and explained to her, you know, the fruits and vegetables that you're eating, each portion is, it costs us about 25 cents. Your entree is, costs about um, 70 cents. And milk is 22 cents. And explained, you know, that meal costs... Um, you know, altogether about dollar thirty-five to dollar forty-five, sometimes even a dollar fifty. Mm-hmm. Yet we only receive uh, from the federal government three dollars and four cents, which has to cover food costs as well as labor um, and benefits. Mm-hmm. And she was floored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she could not. She, I mean, she, she this is a fabulous meal, and I said, I know, but you know, it is. But if we don't start getting additional funding. We're going to have to make some choices here. So um, she is taking that information back to Senator Wyden, mm-hmm. and um, we, we've had several follow-ups as far as some of our asks of where we need support. Right, right. So I, I, I wanted to point out to listeners that you are on the whole actually in agreement with the changes that the School Nutrition Association is asking for with regard to the new meal standards. But mm-hmm. the, but the difference here um, is that you're focusing on cost also, which SNA is not emphasizing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why is that? Why am I focusing on cost? Yeah, and why do you think they're not? I don't know why they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I can speak for myself and my colleagues. And, you know, when we get together and meet with other directors, all of us are facing this challenge of food costs are skyrocketing. And um, with some of the additional requirements that we have through the feds, we need some some sort of relief. And, you know, food costs, I mean, they are going to go up. That's just, that happens. And we just need to look at, you know, what does the meal really cost to prepare? And we need to be reimbursed accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know a lot of people that can serve the food and the quality of food uh, that we serve at, you know, $3.04 a lunch. Right. Right, right. Um, and on our, on our last episode, um, we had uh, two representatives from the Urban School Food Alliance um, mm-hmm. on the air, uh, Steve O'Brien and Dora Rivas. And um, they, they talked about uh, the alliance's request for um, a higher commodity allotment as a mm-hmm. solution. Um, they, and they're calling for, you know, tr- up, up to double or even triple the current amount. 
Um, would you be in agreement? I mean, if you were offered additional commodities, would that help solve your problem with regard to cost? Um, you know, I never turn money away <laughs> or the, you know, possible, um, you know, additional funds. Um, that would be one avenue to look at. Um, the only concern that I have, and it's something that I'm experiencing this year, is that I have a vendor where I have diverted um, food to or um, ingredients to, and they're not able to produce those ingredients. Mm-hmm. So I'm having to use my own you know, funds to buy that product to be able to serve food to kids, and that money won't be reimbursed back to me. So basically so you were shorted on the commodities that you ordered? Yes. Yeah. And okay. so, you know, um, that money will sit in a bank or I can transfer it maybe to another vendor, but the other vendors, you know, are at capacity and can't produce the product for me. Right. So, you know, I, I would personally rather have more money given for each meal that mm-hmm. I can spend the way I want. Or another option would be increasing commodities and increasing entitlement. Mm-hmm. So there's a combination. I think, to me, that's a more realistic picture mm-hmm. and a better use of our of the funds. Right, right, right. It so, provides flexibility. Right, right. So, so briefly, Gita, if we could just—I I know the SNA platform is is a is a big one, and the document you sent me is many pages. But just you know, quickly, just review what they're asking for. Um, and there's and there's one sort of slight. Um, area where you're not in total agreement with regard to whole grain. So can we just sort of review where 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 they stand and where you stand on on these things? Yeah. So I mean, for my my number one is you know asking for more funding, mm-hmm. uh, reimbursement for the meals. Um, the other one is uh, for the fruit and vegetable that we offer it, but don't force kids to take it. And I'll tell you, I was just at a school um, last week at a high school. We were serving pears. And I even took a picture of this table where kids literally just left the pears sitting there. Mm-hmm. And then walking around the school grounds, kids had just thrown the pear on the ground. So there's, I mean, such a waste. Right. Um, so I feel really emphatic about, um, I think fruits and vegetables are really important, but forcing kids to take it is not the answer. You need more education, uh, more time for lunch, things like that. Right, right. Um, the other one is um, the whole grains to uh, keep the requirement at 50%. I could see it at 75%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and who knows where it will end up. Um, but I feel like our district could handle 75%. There are just a few items that we're not able to get. Um, the other one is to maintain the current sodium level and not go to the next levels of mm-hmm. decreasing sodium because, I mean, for, for many reasons. Uh, I'm sure Gary will touch on some of that, too. Right. But, I mean, right. the food just is not going to be palatable, and it will just really affect our participation. Right, right, right. And, and then the last one is just um, on, on the a la carte. We don't serve a la carte, mm-hmm. um, so it doesn't impact us. But some of the new regs on the a la carte um, are quite interesting, and so um, that it needs to be addressed all. Well, it's problematic that the rules for a la carte are different than they are for the reimbursable meal with regard to you know, nutrition standards? Yeah. I mean, you know, you could if you serve it the same day, an entree the same day, mm-hmm. um, as you're serving on the reimbursable lunch, it's okay. And if you serve it the next day, it's okay. But if you serve it three days later, it's not. Right, so right. That seems a little interesting. 
It's complicated, right? <laughs> Very complicated. <laughs> not sure what the reasoning is behind that, but right, right. fortunately that does not affect us. Right, right. Well, Gita, thank you so much for sharing this, and, and I would encourage listeners to go back to the pilot episode where Gita first spoke about some of these issues, um, and there'll be a link to that episode on the episode page for today's um, show, as well as a link to a really great article um, that was in the Portland Tribune about Portland Public Schools, um, their their food program, their budget, their, the role of community eligibility and um, making it all happen. So I'll, I'll uh, provide a link to that as well. Uh, we've been speaking with Gita Grether Sweeney, Director of Nutrition Services of Portland Public Schools in Oregon, and a highly valued and totally pro bono advisor to this show. Gita, thank you again for joining us and for all your support. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, We're going to go to station break now. Uh, Stay with us for some really interesting industry perspective from our next guest, Gary Vonk. Let's go back to where I began. Oh, I took you to that distant land. It was the first time go you saw the snow every place a television show roads and bridges all have names steel and iron pictured Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back to Inside School Food. Today we are talking about the rising cost of serving school meals, including costs associated with the introduction of the new nutrition standards that are mandated by Healthy Hunger Free Kids 2010. Uh, My next guest, Gary Vonk, is Vice President of the Education Division for Key Impact Sales and Systems. Uh, Key Impact is a major player in the national food service supply chain with more than 800 employees. Um, As Gary has explained it to me, Key Impact is technically a brokerage firm. Brokers do a whole lot more than they used to. So he prefers to uh, describe his company as a sales and marketing agency. Welcome, Gary. Good morning, Laura. So um, we we recently concluded a month of episodes about farm-to-school programming where the focus was on local food systems and small-scale vendors. But the vast majority of food served in schools flow through the national supply chain where very large agribusiness and food processing dominates the scene. So I'm, I'm really pleased to have you here today to help us understand it all better. Um, and, and maybe to start, maybe you could do a little better job than I just did in describing what your company does. 
Well, I think you did a pretty good job. Oh, but anyway, you. what we are is a national sales and marketing agency. In the simplest sense, it, to understand it, when companies choose not to have their own national sales team, they will hire us on a market-to-market or national basis so we can provide to them the support and direction on sales locally that they would if they had their own team. Uh, so we're involved in every aspect of sales for the manufacturer, whether it's in local manufacturer, regional, or national manufacturer. Right, right. And I know you don't, you're not comfortable naming um, clients on the air, but, but just to give us a sense of, of, of what you do, like what is the, the size and the type of company that you typically represent? Well, I mean, basically, we have many of many many national manufacturers. Whether it's in the uh, the beef and poultry categories, the uh, the vegetable area with potatoes, whether it's a a processed or a, a, a manufacturer of uh, finished products such as pizza or uh, different entrees of that nature. But many of them are very strong national brands that are very recognizable. Right, right. And then part of your work is having relationship with with SFAs. Like how how do your, how does your team interact with food service directors? Well, what we do, we have on a national basis, we have a, te- a, a team of 89 salespeople nationally that do nothing but call on the K-12 through channel. And then we also have a, uh, two different teams. We have a bid team, which we have seven bid hubs nationally, and we have uh, seven commodity hubs nationally who do the processing of bids. But on the commodity side, they work with the uh, the school food authorities pertaining to their drawdowns, their diversions on commodities, trying to make sure the keeping the values passing through. One of the challenges, because uh, many schools don't have the infrastructure, it's making sure that the schools are reminded and are guided on their commodities to, to utilize those commodities that they have diverted so they can get the value through their system and help with their costs. Right, right. And for smaller districts, I think that, that you're... you're Support in that area must be pretty important because it, gets it, it comes back that yeah. way. They mm-hmm. I, we get a lot of compliments on that, and it's and again, it, it is the smaller schools that struggle because they don't have the multiple layers of uh, support locally. And, but again, a lot of national ones will or larger ones will also struggle just because they've got so many things on their plate, and we're just trying to help remind them of the things they've already decided to do. Right, right, right. So I'd like to talk about what Gita had to say about her rising food costs. She talked about it today and also on our first episode back in May. Can, can you help us understand what's going on? Like, wh- where are food costs going up and, um, and why? Well, there's so many reasons, and that's the scariest part. And I know when we talked earlier, I referred to it as a perfect storm. Uh, we've got a lot of challenges in our, our sector, and uh, a lot of it started to become more obvious during the meal pattern rule change. Uh, prior to 2012, before the meal pattern rule changed, there was a, a pattern of normal usage of products by school districts pretty much across America. Mm-hmm. And that's a generalization. But generally speaking, they, distributors and manufacturers had a pretty good idea of what they were going to use based on their past purchases. When the, the rule changed in 2012, it threw really all those quote-unquote standard items up into the air because now things needed to basically be reformulated either based on size or based on the amount of whole grains or amount of protein in it. And that, that ch- changed the flow of prediction, if you will, uh, into the, the supply channel. Um, just as a, and someone might say, well, that's w- w- strange. Why wouldn't you still know what they're going to use? The problem is, is that in 
in the school food service arena, less than 15% of the schools across America send forecasts to their distributors and to their manufacturers mm-hmm. of choice. And that just kills the communication piece. And if you think of that, how that just sort of, and that hasn't changed, so if you think of how that follows the system through, lack of information is critical to us. But then with the changing of products and formulation, it's taken even the best guesstimation out of the fact of of understanding that. And then when you throw into weather conditions, drought conditions, uh, the inability to have the right fruits and vegetables or the right grains, it just causes that to continue to spiral. And then when you throw in just the really extreme costs of reformulating or redesigning your products, mm-hmm. and then the rising costs of products, or excuse me, ingredients, such as rising costs of the whole grain ingredients mm-hmm. and how expensive that has been in the evolution of that, and then the rising and the high cost of sodium replacements, that again throws us into pretty much that perfect storm. Right, right. Would you say, you, you mentioned two things in particular, whole grains and sodium re, uh, replacements. Which, are those the areas where you see prices going up the most? I, I would say that's probably one of the bigger areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's other slight factors that, that cause things to happen. I mean, again, the unpredictable nature of, of fresh products, fresh fruits and vegetables, or the feed grains that go up and cause the the, the, the poultry or the the beef prices to go up. But, you know, when you just if you just had the two things to deal with, whole grain uh, costs of reformulation and, pro- and, and those ingredients and the sodium piece, those in itself would be enough to cause prices to go up. And again, thrown in with everything else, it causes it to be quite extreme. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the term you, you, you used uh, earlier when we spoke last week was you can't just flick a switch. This is a giant national supply chain. So it, it takes a lot of doing to, to turn it around. So we're, we're basically dealing with that upheaval. Well, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand not being in the channel on the the production side or manufacturing side is a typical reformulation or development of a new product is typically anywhere from 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. And it's not where you can just, I mean, in case of where the maximums, proteins and grains, there is just simple situations, but very, very difficult in taking up most, you know, say most of the manufacturers selling hamburger patties across the schools were selling a, a 2.25 ounce, which is pretty much a similar, very standard product. Well, when the maximums on the daily usage for high schools was two ounces of protein or less, they had to shift down because you couldn't put that slice of cheese on the hamburger or things of that nature. So. Right. It shifted down to a 1.75 ounce versus a 2.25 ounce. And again, where it affects industry is, number one, you have to create a new plate and have a new plate made, which is not cheap. And number two, for all the portions now that you're selling out there, same amount of portions, you're actually selling them far less in quantities. And again, there's industry is has to work on very small margins in this channel because it's a very competitive area. So you, you wrap all those together and it causes a lot of stress on a lot of areas of the supply chain. Right, right. And so, so what the situation you're describing, I think, also is, would explain the, the food shortages that so many of my guests on the show have been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we've seen over the last few years is somewhat of a reluctancy for a lot of uh, manufacturers to overproduce. 
when they, back in 12, 13, they were producing what the schools were bidding on. In the spring that year, the schools were bidding on products that actually didn't meet the new meal standards, mm-hmm. but it was the only items that they could put on their bid because they didn't have solutions the way it came, this came down so fast. So when you had a lot of production of products that weren't going to be able to be utilized, you had the potential of debt inventory and things of that nature. Right. And there was a lot of those circumstances. Well, fast forward to this year, uh, as we headed into this school year with the new Smart Snacks rule, you had similar concerns and scenarios for a lot of manufacturers. You had products that were on the bids for the fall that for the a la carte, the food area, if you will, and yet they, we knew many people knew they weren't going to meet the, the, the regulations, mm-hmm. but they still were on there. So there was a lot of unknown. Now with the new companies or the companies trying to keep up with what they felt the demand was, there was a lot more manufacturers sort of putting on the brakes and saying, well, you know what, we need to find out what exactly they're going to use, and we will have to wait until to roll this up until we get closer into the school year. Right. And yeah. that's why August was a very difficult, August and September were very difficult times because it was a lot of sort of guessing what was happening. And then you threw on that the circumstances where the, the, the beef side of the business went very strongly up in price. Uh, the USDA had some challenges in the commodity purchases on beef and some other things. So now people who diverted their commodity dollars to get commodity products, now we're trying to buy it on the commercial side. Mm-hmm. And again, you just can't shift that volume that quickly without giving lead time because manufacturers don't sit there with you know t- two times the the normal volume. I mean they're trying to run it as close as they can, just like a school would do in their 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 school lunch program. You can't have that type of you know storage situation. Right, right. This, this is so great, Gary. It really helps me and hope our, hopefully our listeners understand this whole shortage situation. Um, I'd like to finish by asking you about two trends that we talk about a lot on Inside School Food, and that is local purchasing and scratch cooking. Um, I just wonder, you know, in your opinion, to what extent can kind of more um, intimate relationships with with um, you know producers you know, sort of smaller, more nimble producers, to, you know, to what extent can that insulate a district from the from the vagaries in the national system that you're describing? Well, I honestly, I think, and, and I've shared this a little bit with you before, I, I, I challenged with a lot of the local production pieces just because it doesn't distribute itself fairly across the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Gita is very fortunate to have the suppliers she has locally and in those strong food communities or metropolitan areas where they have that. That's really a luxury, and it's great that they have it. I think as you look across the country, there's a challenge with of where they're located. A lot of them are located, manufacturers are based on uh, you know logistic purposes of where they can get to the highway or the interstates and things of that nature. I think it's a great thing that can help. I don't ever think it will be the solution because I just don't think we have the, the number of suppliers out there to be able to provide that across the country. Right. And it's like with the scratch situation, I think the real, realistic approach is more of speed scratch, mm-hmm. things that are made to a certain level but aren't made from exactly, you know, from flour and water, if you will. Right. Uh, because, again, it, it, it transfers into, if you look at uh, the, the statistics that are out there, the labor costs are going up as much as food costs are going up. And with labor costs going up, we already know that they, they're having their struggles in trying to produce the things that they're all doing 
let alone trying to take on more. Now, again, I say that as a general term. There's some districts that do a fabulous job because they have the infrastructure mm-hmm. and the formulation of free and reduced that helps subsidize it to give them the dollars to have that type of help. Right, right, right. Um, that, that's great, Gary. And that, that, the last comment you made is actually a terrific segue to my episode next week, which is going to feature conversations with two uh, classically trained chefs who are food service directors in mid-sized districts on the West Coast. And um, in their case, they're both having a lot of success in keeping their participation up and meeting their bottom lines with programs that rely heavily on fresh food prepared in-house. But but they are set up for that, as you say. So um, I, I encourage folks to, to tune in and, and hear about that um, paradigm. Um, we have been visiting with Gary Vonk, a K-12 supply chain veteran who represents a suite of major national food vendors. Um, and Gary, we have really appreciated hearing your industry insights, and I hope we can tap into your expertise again sometime. It'd be my pleasure. Um, so for resource links to, uh, related to today's conversation, go to today's episode page on InsideSchoolFood.com. And while you're there, do sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's How We Know Who Is Listening, which helps us to better tailor content to meet your needs. And uh, consider signing up for my Twitter feed. You can do that from the website as well. I'm using Twitter to provide subscribers with quick and easy access to a steady stream of um, school food news you can use. So check it out. And I am Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 